Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's Veterans Day weekend as we honor and celebrate the nation's veterans for their service. We talked to Vietnam veteran turned author Ron Farina about his experiences and the books he's written about his fellow veterans. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. This weekend is Veterans Day weekend here in the U.S., a federal holiday to honour the nation's military veterans of the United States Armed Forces. It coincides with other holidays such as Armistice Day and Remembrance Day, which are commemorated in other countries to mark the anniversary of the end of World War I on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month back in 1918. Veterans Day is distinct from Memorial Day that we celebrate in May each year, which honours those who have died while in military service. In the US today, there are around 18.5 million veterans who have served, and Eastern Connecticut has the largest veteran community here in the state. I caught up with Vietnam veteran now-turned-author Ron Farina from Vernon to talk about his experiences in the war that divided America and his quest years later to help tell the stories of his fellow veterans, both male and female. Ron, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. First of all, thank you for your service, sir. You are, of course, as we said, a Vietnam veteran, and this podcast is going out over the veterans' weekends. So to you and all of our veterans, as I say, we thank you. You have an interesting story. Talk us through the beginnings of it. That's September of 1965, when I came to CCSU, freshly graduated from Wolcott High School. But I wasn't living at home any longer, and living alone and going going to school and trying to work was a challenge. So I completed a semester and realized that I probably didn't have the money to enroll in the second semester. And to put things in perspective, I mean, a semester was $300. You can't buy books today for $300 for a full semester. But I thought that the best course of action would be to withdraw, work from that December all the way through the summer, and then come back to university uh, the following September. It didn't work out that way. When I withdrew, I was immediately reclassified for the draft, classified available for immediate induction. And I got a a letter that I interpreted as a draft notice, but it was actually a request to report to the draft board to register because I I hadn't registered. So I went down to the military recruiting office on Bank Street in Waterbury, fully expecting that I was being inducted into the military. I said, well, I don't want to go and I don't want to go in the army. There's this thing called Vietnam ramping up. That doesn't sound like a place I really want to be. Let me go down and and follow the footsteps of my uncles and my father and join the Navy. So I walked into the recruiting office, a shared office of the Navy and and the Marine Corps. The Navy recruiter was out to lunch. The Marine Corps recruiter wasn't. And the rest, as they say, is history. The Marine Corps recruiter quickly talked me into joining the Marine Corps. said, you definitely don't want to be in the Navy. I didn't really question why. (laughs) But he was quite convincing. I think classic image of a young man's version of what a Marine is with the dress blue 
trousers on and the, the red stripe, and it's like, oh my. He filled my head with this vision of what's called an aviation guarantee. So you won't be in the infantry, you won't carry a rifle, you'll never wind up in Vietnam. Not with an aviation guarantee, you'll wind up maybe working on airplanes or flying in them. Or Hey, sounds great. And of course, that following September, I was in Vietnam. Talk to us about that, because Vietnam even now, although Vietnam veterans are finally getting the recognition that they fully deserve for their involvement in that eight-year war, how did you feel and how was it? We see images, we know it wasn't a pleasant place by any stretch of the imagination for everybody involved, but you suddenly found yourself there as an 18, 19-year-old young man thrust into this strange world bombs, bullets, and everything flying left, right, and center. Talk us through that time in your life. You know, in boot camp, which is a whole different story, boot camp wasn't pleasant. We wound up actually having one of the members of the platoon being killed by a drill instructor. And then I wound up having to go through a trial for that. So I wound up on my way to Vietnam by myself, not with folks that I trained with. So I, I land in Vietnam in Da Nang. I had never experienced heat like the heat that I was exposed to walking off the aircraft. But then I found myself languishing in a tin-roofed hut with a wet mud floor for three days waiting to find out where they were going to send me. They finally sent me to a Marine aircraft group and a Marine air base at Marble Mountain Combat Air Base. And what I was doing was aircraft crash fire and rescue. Very quickly, I didn't stay at Marble Mountain long at all. Went up to Fubai. Fubai is eight miles outside of Wei. Myself, Phil Curran, and, and Al Rose were all moved further north. I stopped at Fubai, was stationed there for m- almost my entire tour. Al went to a place called Dong Ha, and Phil went to Kaesan. I was the only one who came back. Al was killed. Phil was killed. I didn't know until years later that bodies that we were carrying off of a helicopter One of them was actually Al, who I had become very, very good friends with. That probably sums up my time in in Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't out in the jungle when I initially landed there. Almost everybody winds up doing an obligatory 30-day perimeter duty, so you are patrolling. But that was pretty much my exposure to real day-to-day combat or uh, the real heroes in my book were the guys that, that we were putting on helicopters every morning and sending them out into the jungle and then two days later unloading them, either wounded or killed. So fast forward, you come back from Vietnam, clearly a very changed person as anybody would in those circumstances, and you basically wanted to rid yourself of any sort of memories of it. Reading through some information, you said that you burnt your uniform and didn't want to have anything to do with Vietnam. How did that work in practicality, though? Because burning those symbols is one thing. The memories don't disappear. Yeah, they don't disappear. I mean, you know, you can do a pretty good job of stuffing them down very very deep. And, and I think I had succeeded at that for several decades. And the trigger for me, of course, was actually coming back to this very same university where you and I sit right now. And I had retired, had a wonderful career as a uh, corporate recruiter, wound up owning the business that I actually went to, to work for. I bought, I bought the business from fellows that I went to work for. But when I retired, it gnawed at me that I had never completed the degree. And I said, well, now now's as good a time as any to go back to school. I did have benefits from my time in, in Vietnam that would actually cover the cost of the education. So I did. And I came back to the campus and everything that I had 
stuffed away for four and a half decades, suddenly decided that no longer was going to remain where I thought it it, it should. And I visited the, the Veterans Center to check in and, and make sure that I was going to get all my veteran benefits and, and my tuition would be covered. And there was one document that I had to drop off at admissions. I found myself in the admissions room, which was the very same room that I had last been in four and a half decades earlier. And that was the trigger for memories of, of Vietnam and flashbacks. And I actually wound up outside on a park bench sobbing with the memories of Vietnam and reliving Elle's death and Phil's death. Phil was quite a guy. Phil was under five feet and needed a congressional waiver to join the military. And Phil was, uh, he only had a couple of weeks left in Vietnam. He had come back from Quezon, which was the worst place you possibly could be, back down to Marble Mountain where we all started. And Marble was supposed to be the safest place the night that Phil came back there, we were rocketed and, and Phil lost his life that night. So all those things that, that I had done my best to squash wouldn't remain silent anymore after I, I came back to campus. And that started a whole new a whole new life for me, I think, really. You know, when you're in the middle of a war, you don't know as much about it as, as you probably should. And after sitting there realizing that, no, I wasn't going to be able to forget my time in Vietnam, I wanted to know more about it. And I began to studying more about it, how we got there, formed my own opinion on, on whether or not we should have been there. I don't think we should, but that's another story. And in school, I had come back to school as a music major, got somewhat disillusioned with the rigor of actually becoming a music major. It probably as onerous as, as becoming a physician. It's not an easy program. I saw a flyer for a writing course. I decided to investigate that, realized that that was probably my true calling and my passion. Graduated the university with a special studies degree. The CCSU still does not have a major in writing, but I had met a professor who said, well, if that's the major you want, we can write a proposal and see if the university will approve it. They did. Creative nonfiction, go for it. I got that degree, went on to Western Connecticut State University, got a, a master's in fine arts in professional writing. And shortly after that, my original mentor who had helped me craft the proposal here said, I have a book project for you. Book project? She said, yes. And the quick explanation there is that her brother is a historian at Georgetown University, and he is very close friends with the Duke of Belgium. Duke of Belgium's part of his family's foundation is to give back to America by recognizing sacrifices that the American military makes when around and Afghanistan wars began, he began visiting Bethesda and began visiting wounded. One of the things that he noticed was caregivers who were making incredible sacrifices to take care of catastrophically wounded family members weren't really getting much recognition. So he thought a book about that would be good. My original mentor, Mary Collins, to write the book, she said, I'm not the person to write this book. You need a veteran to write this book. And said, I have a guy. He recommended me. The Duke of Belgium funded the project. And we wound up publishing that first book, Who Will Have My Back, which is a short book about caregivers and organizations that take care of catastrophically wounded veterans. How challenging was it to write any of these books? Because they're intense books. We're talking about people's very, very personal stories. And not only people's personal stories, but of course, your own memories as well, weaved into these 
things somewhere. How much of a challenge was it, particularly this first book? In the first book, I infused more of myself in it, which looking back now, I might have written it a bit differently. But the first book, the challenge was in finding people that first of all, we're willing to talk about their experiences. When you ask them to talk about it, you're asking them to revisit pain, trauma, them to open themselves up to the public, potentially even to some criticism. There are issues of of some information being classified that you've got to make certain you're not putting into a book. We found five or six people and organizations that were really willing to tell their stories. And we spent hours with my travel the country, spent three to five days with each one of the subjects in the book, and really true immersive journalism, especially the stories about the amputee clinic out in Colorado, following one of the, actually the chief physical therapist around for three days, watching him work with amputees and going into the prosthetics lab and seeing how they were made. And wounded veterans with limb loss were really experiencing. That was eye-opening to me, something that most people never fully understand. With that experience, can understand it as best as anyone who hasn't actually lost a limb could. I was excited about getting that story told in, in the book as well. Talk to us uh, briefly about Out of the Shadows, because that was the second book. What was that concentrating on, and how did that come about? Well, Out of the Shadows came about just one very benign comment from someone who had read the first book, who will have have my back said you know great book maybe a little too short and you don't talk about women much in the book and you do know women serve and I said well of course I know women serve but I hadn't thought about writing about them but why not let's write about women we should write maybe what you perceive as a wrong and instead of this book just being a one-off I went back to the Duke with a proposal to write a second book which was out of the shadows voices of American women soldiers and the thought was that this book would be about catastrophic wounded women soldiers who had served in Iraq and Afghanistan and really to bring their service out of the shadows because they do serve in the shadows of men. And up until 2013, women weren't allowed to serve in active combat, but they were. And all of these women received Purple Hearts for combat action while there was a ban on women serving in active combat. The Duke was all on board. He he funded the research, funded the book project, but there was a caveat that I'll fund that if you will write a third book, which is almost finished now. And the third book is about the families of fallen soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan. But the challenge in Out of the Shadows was not so much in locating the wounded women soldiers, but finding wounded women soldiers who were courageous enough to talk about their experiences. And we wound up probably contacting somewhere between 30 and 40, interviewed 20. Of the 20, we were supposed to have 10 in the book. We wound up with nine. Could have been more, but some of them along the way said, you know what, now that we're into this, I can't do this. The challenge for me was gaining their trust to be able to convince them that I had their best interest at heart. I wasn't out to exploit them, that I really genuinely wanted to understand not just what they went through with wounds, but what their experience serving side by side with men was like. And some of the differences are not anything that we think about. We don't think about the challenge for birth control that a woman has in a combat zone. We don't think about the different hygiene issues that women face. There's a a man who decided that creating a contraption called a go-girl 
patrol was was the solution for women in combat to be able to urinate on patrol without having to drop their trousers. And this was a plastic form-fitting device that fit over their crotch with a hose that ran down their leg. Well, the result was every woman that used it wound up with incredible infections. What almost no one understands about wounded women is the blast trauma usually denies them the ability to have children. So the differences in women and men serving in combat are highlighted in the book and I think graphically highlighted in the book, but the book also makes certain that people know that women were up to the task and served just as brave and just as effectively as the men did. Talk to us about At the Altar of the Past, that book. As close to a memoir of my life as you're going to get. It's my growing up in Waterbury, son of an Italian immigrant who was a bit of a tyrant, my leaving home early, the day after high school graduation, and trying to navigate the world on my own as, as I graduated high school at 17, trying to navigate the world of men as a 17-year-old, and then finding myself in Vietnam. When I went to Vietnam as an 18-year-old, you know, back then, people married a lot younger than they do today. I was engaged to a, an absolutely beautiful young woman from Waterbury. I got the classic Dear John letter six months into my tour, came back, came looking for her, found her, same day that I arrived back in Waterbury from Vietnam, only to discover that she was getting married that very weekend. So that was kind of heartbreaking, and I decided, well, the best place for me is to go back to Vietnam. And, and I tried to go back to Vietnam. Couldn't because I had a recurrence of malaria, and they wouldn't allow me to go back. Came back, and then uh, I did. And when I came back, I, said, I didn't want any part of remembering Vietnam. And part of what triggered those experiences was coming back here. So the book is about all of that, but a true rendition of her and I meeting again again, somewhere between 20 and 25 years after we last saw each other, only to discover that we were still very much in love with each other. And in the book, it talks about how we decided to leave our families and reunite. And the unfortunate thing was that she was a smoker and wound up suffering a catastrophic brain aneurysm and she was lost. So it's a heart-rendering book set against the backdrop of Vietnam. It's great adult literary fiction. And I would suggest anybody that wants to shed a tear or two, pick it up and read it. Three powerful books that we've discussed there. You have a fourth, which will be coming out later in 2024 called Sacrifice, What We Can Expect. Sacrifice is very different than any of the books that I've written about veterans and their families. Those books are, each story is kind of one-dimensional, told from the point of view of one individual. This book, each story is told from the point of view of multiple subjects involved in the same event. When a soldier or, or a Navy SEAL or an Army Ranger is lost, there are many, many people involved in what comes next. The first is a notification team. Someone has to tell the family, and someone has to tell the family very quickly. So these casualty assistance officers and in, in in the Navy and Marine Corps, they're called casualty assistance calls officers, have the job of notifying the family and then taking them through the process of bringing the remains home, getting that person buried and settling their affairs. Well, their stories are not told. Very few people understand what a casualty assistance officer goes through. So each story has the casualty assistance officer's point of view and how they were tasked at a minute's notice to be the person that had to notify the family. Then each story has the humanizing of the individual 
who's actually lost background of the person growing up, why they joined the military, their relationship with their family, mothers, dads, brothers, sisters. And then each story has the primary next of kin who were closest to the individual who was lost, what they've experienced the day that they discovered that they had lost a son, a brother, a father, sister, husband, wife, and then what that did to them, where they are in their lives now. So these stories, each one is somewhere between 60 and 80 pages versus the 25 to 30 pages that the other stories were in the first two books. So this is a big read. It is a big read. I think one of the most difficult things for me to write about and for people to revisit is I was also able, each one of these stories, to interview the survivors of the battle in which other people were killed. In each one of these stories, an actual firsthand account of the battle or the attack that wound up killing the individual who we're writing about. One of the stories that has touched me deeply is the story of Nicole G. Nicole G. was the, the young woman Marine sergeant who in the last 10 days of Afghanistan was splashed all over world news, cradling a baby in her arms with the caption, I love my job. Well, Nicole was killed three days after that photo was taken. But Nicole's best friend, Kelsey Lanehart, was catastrophically wounded in that same attack. Kelsey walked me through Nicole and her last 10 days in Afghanistan, which were our last 10 days in Afghanistan. And, and Kelsey chronicled the last 10 days minute by minute, sent me you know, a lot of documents, personal diary type documents. She chronicled every day. So she was a great resource. Her wounds wound up leaving her paralyzed from the waist down. So her story is part of this next book as well. I mean, that story alone is 25 pages. As we talk to you, it's clear. I mean, people can't see you, but obviously I'm sat across the table from you. The on your eyes, how it has affected you, how it still affects you. But the passion that is clearly there to bring these incredible and powerful stories to light. We're very fortunate that you had that epiphany, as it were, and decided to bring back those memories and also to start writing other people's stories, obviously, about the various conflicts, which sadly we see too often in our world. Ron, we wish you continued success. We look forward to reading Sacrifice. But thank you for being on Connecticut East this week. You're so welcome and thanks for having me. And if you're interested in getting hold of Ron's books, they're available from all good booksellers as well as available to purchase online at Barnes & Noble and Amazon. It's hurricane season and your trees can be damaged by high winds. Green Valley Tree has you covered with our emergency tree service outside of our regular business hours. We offer emergency tree service by bucket, crane, and climbing for residential, commercial, and even municipalities across eastern Connecticut. From full tree removals, uprooted or broken trees, to broken, hung up, or fractured tree limbs. Call our emergency hotline on 860-966-5710 or visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com. You know you don't have to wear your PT gear anymore, right? It's comfortable. So how's civilian life treating you? It's fine. When I got out, I didn't want to admit that there was anything wrong because I felt like a failure. And then I realized, like, there's nothing to be ashamed of. So I started talking to someone. Maybe you are fine. But if you're not, it's okay. Thank you. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. 
Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. The 2023 elections are over, and in many places across the state and the region, there wasn't much change to the status quo, with many incumbents holding on to their positions. Putnam Mayor Barney Sene stays, as does Thomas DeVivo, Mayor of Wyndham, who wins his second term with an impressive 63% of the vote. And in New London, incumbent Democratic Mayor Mike Passero won his third term in office by a substantial margin, taking over 60% of the vote there, although overall voting numbers numbers in the city were down to around 8 to 10% compared to the statewide average of 12%, something Passero acknowledged. The low voter turnout just sent a message that the people are satisfied with how the city's going. You know, if they're sitting home, happy with how it's going. And try as I might, I could not get the vote out like I did in the last two elections. But we're fine. I think the margins show that we're still doing a great job. Passero said he never expected to be in office for 12 years and said he wouldn't put money on going much longer than that. Beloved Carter was the Republican challenger to Passero and said despite the loss, she's not going anywhere. The results are in. I'm not going to question the numbers, but I will say this. I'm not going anywhere. They got the vote and they're going to work for it because we're going to be at every city council meeting and we're going to hold their feet to the fire. They have the trust of this community and now they're going to prove that they deserve to be in that seat that they're in. And Leon Richard Long was the new London Green Party candidate and said, unfortunately, tradition and who you're used to goes a long way in the city. In New London, more than 80% of our registered voters stay home. That's definitely voter apathy. That's definitely a circumstance where the people who are asked to make change say, what's the point? We know what we're going to get. Voter apathy is real and it has plagued New London for a long time. And New London has become the third location in the eastern part of the state to open a social equity-owned cannabis retail store. Hire Collective is an organization that collaborates with each of its local partners to bring a more equitable future to the cannabis industry in the state by shared ownership with them. Tori Garrett is the social equity owner of the new Hire Collective store in New London and said her personal story and journey to become a store owner comes from the recent passing of her daughter six months ago. She was a medical cannabis customer and she had epilepsy as well as a lot of other diagnosis, but seeing what cannabis did for her to reduce her seizures, to give her comfort, to be able to relax her muscles in her body, I was just absolutely blown away. When cannabis became legal in Connecticut, I just thought it would be a great field to get into. Patrick Johnson is the founder of Hire Collective and said this type of business model is essential if the cannabis industry is to evolve and grow. The fact that in Connecticut we'll be able to stand up 10 social equity own businesses. That will probably be more than any company in the America has done in the cannabis space. And this is, you know, me and my small team who's been able to stand up 10 social equity owned businesses, which is incredible. And, and obviously that wouldn't have happened unless the state supports it. But that is probably the one thing I'm the most proud of. The new stores are adult use only, meaning they do not serve medical marijuana clients and all customers must be 21 years or older to shop there. High Collective is looking to open its fourth store in Hartford around Thanksgiving with plans for another four stores in 2024. It already has stores open in Killingly and Willington. And six Connecticut military veterans whose cremated remains have never been claimed, one for almost 50 years, were honoured recently with a full military funeral. The event was co-hosted by the Connecticut Department of Veterans Affairs and the Connecticut Funeral Directors Association, who helped identify the unclaimed remains at funeral homes across the state. Governor Lamont, local dignitaries and military veterans were in attendance, along with the Lieutenant Governor, who explained why ceremonies like these now exist. In 2009, Connecticut became 
the first state in the country to establish new protocols to identify unclaimed cremated remains of our veterans in funeral homes. And today, we mark the ninth ceremony of its kind since then that all of our veterans get full military honors. Ron Welch is the Commissioner of the Department of Veterans Affairs and explained the role of his agency and how important events like these are. At the Connecticut Department of Veterans Affairs, we have four core missions. Residential services, skilled nursing facility, advocacy and assistance, and cemetery memorial services. How we remember and honor the dead is more important than the other three missions. Local firefighters supplied a giant American flag for the event and members of the Connecticut Patriot Guard Riders served as flag bearers as Greg Barrett, state captain of the Patriot Guard Riders, explained their role. It is an all-volunteer organization. There is a chapter in every state. You do not have to be a veteran, so we have people from all walks of life, people that come out and we support veterans by holding flags and providing the escorts. We do approximately 300 events a year. They're not all funerals, so we have some welcome homes, some send-offs, other things like that. So anybody can join the Patriot Guard Riders. It's a non-denominational group, and we're here to support veterans, first responders, and their families. The six veterans served from World War II up to the Vietnam War, and four came from the Army, one from the Air Force, and one from the Navy. Two of the veterans were husband and wife. The ceremony was held at the Middletown State Veterans Cemetery. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.